0: The following podcast is brought to you by The Village Sendo. For more information, visit villagesendo.org. Good uh, early afternoon, late morning to everybody. Can can you hear me, okay? Okay, I see thumbs up. That's good um my name is uh, daishi and i'm an assistant teacher here at the village zendo uh, talking to you from uh, a, a fairly cold somewhat rainy boston I day that's right, that's right. That's i hear right. i hear other sounds should i go keep down down. going sure. and uh hopefully we'll give him Okay, I'll keep going until someone tells me not to. Um, oh, I'm sorry, Daisy. Yes, we had an audio issue. Thank you. Okay. No, nope, no, no problem. Te- technology challenges, gates, and gates and barriers abound. Um, so, uh, you know, I was sitting with you all this morning, and I think the the very first thing I'd like to do is actually just recognize a couple people who aren't. Here, right now, um, but I'm very grateful to in, the, in this moment, which is um my, my my wife and my two children. I have to say that um, the last few weeks there's been a lot of traveling, and um, and I have, and this Dharma talk really uh, <clears throat> took me took me away. I really struggled with this Dharma talk. Um, and so that was that was my position, and um, I think I felt very supported and um, just recognize again and again how how much of a, a community practice, um, formal and informal, our our work is. So what I'd like to talk to you today about are our robes, about the the vast and. Indestructible robe of liberation. Um, I did not grow up seeing anyone in robes, and any religious garments that I saw were within the Abrahamic traditions. Um, you know, I remember seeing photos of people sitting Zazen draped in ornate Buddhist robes and feeling this sense of calm uprightedness. Um, that was very attractive. Uh, later in life, um, I had a friend who was a Zen priest, and I remember how um, inspiring and humbling it felt to watch him sit zazen out of the corner of my eyes while I was supposed to be doing zazen myself. And he just looked like this, this kind of mountain of concentration. Um, so legend has it that this kind of intricate patch robe design of the Buddhist robe um, comes from the historical Buddha himself, who one day was overlooking fields of rice paddies, um, reaching out into the horizon and was just struck by their beauty. And he turned to his friend um, and attendant Ananda and said, wouldn't it be nice to sew our robes in the same checkered pattern? And according to um, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Zen master Ananda said, that's a wonderful idea. You have said that a bhikkhu or a monk uh, who practices the way is like a fertile field in which seeds of virtue and merit have been sown to benefit both the present and future generations. When one makes offerings to such a bhikkhu, or studies and practices with him, it is like sowing seeds of virtue and merit. I will tell the rest of the community to sow future robes in the pattern of rice fields, and we can call our robes fields of merit." Um, when I hear this part of the story, one of the aspects that really stands out for me is the wonderful mind of Ananda. Um, I can kind of picture the Buddha just overlooking these vast fields of rice, just sitting with their wild, complex patterns and feeling wrapped already in thusness. And thinking, wouldn't it be nice if all beings could realize how thoroughly wrapped in thusness they are. And then our beloved Ananda was off to the races. Yes, and the pattern could symbolize this, and it could mean that, metaphor, framework, should it be nine rows, six rows? Um, but of course, this is part of what we do, right? We, we think and interpret Refine, define, discriminate, discern. Um, At any rate, this is where we get our pattern for the robes. And according to traditional teachings, a kesa, or an okesa, the big priest's robes, should be made from discarded cloth. Um, Cloth burnt by fire, munched by oxen, gnawed by mice, or worn by the dead are said to be ideal. Uh, Dogen Zenji, from our own tradition, says it this way in Kesa uh, Kudoku, or the virtue of the robe. What the world abandons, the way uses. And considered from this angle, the robe made from discarded rags, That which is considered kind of distasteful (coughs) and dirty is like another of Zen's beloved metaphors, that of the lotus flower, which grows from and remains one with the mud. Um, Over time and within the Zen tradition, another version of the Kesa emerged with additional meanings and stories um, the the rakusu, um, like the kesa, it's formed from uh, a patchwork of strips. In modern day Japan, it is worn by monks um, as a less formal alternative to the kesa, and in both Japan and the West, it's worn by lay people, not only priests, during meditation practice. Um, I could not determine in preparing for this talk if there is a definitive history uh, or origin story to the Rakasu. Some say that it developed during the transition to manual labor in China because a full kesa was cumbersome. Other suggestions that I read about are that the Rakasu started as the bag that wandering monks wore to carry alms bowls Um, or small items and that it was only later formalized into kind of religious garb. Uh, Apparently there are some Japanese scholars who believe that it developed during the Edo or Tokugawa era due to regulations limiting the size and fabric type of clerical wear. At the village zendo, The Rākasu is received during the Jūkai ceremony, which is an initiation into the Zen Buddhist community. The Jū in Jūkai means receiving, but also transmitting, and kai means precepts. Maizumi Roshi said that the kai is to really be aware of your own nature. So the Jukai ceremony is an opportunity to receive, transmit, and take refuge in your own nature, your own true nature. During the Jukai ceremony, you take refuge in the 16 precepts composed of the three refuges, the three pure precepts, and the 10 grave precepts. And I will not go over all of these. But for those who may have never heard of them before, I do want to mention the three refuges. The first is oneness, the awakened nature of all beings, the refuge of the Buddha. The second is diversity, the ocean of wisdom and compassion. This is the refuge of the Dharma. And the third is harmony, the interdependence of all creations. This is considered the refuge of the Sangha, But there is another historical interpretation of the Rakasu that has always uh, moved me and that I want to hold up for consideration today. And that account says that the Rakasu emerged as a response to a period of time in China when Buddhists were persecuted. A time when to wear the full Kesa presented an actual danger to one's life. When monks and nuns had to either return to lay life or face punishment. And unable to wear the traditional robes, they recreated the rakasu, and they could wear it under their clothing. So such persecution towards practitioners of Zen may feel fortunately improbable and like an upsetting footnote from a distant past as we sit here in the 21st century, most if not all of us on a coast in the United States where Buddhism currently enjoys a largely positive set of associations. This persecution may also feel particularly deviant and hard to imagine if we relate to these robes from the perspective of the traditional stories I just summarized. Stories that suggest these robes symbolize symbolize the beauty, nourishment, and vastness of life. Stories that suggest these robes ground us in an understanding of non-separation. That enlightenment is not separate from the discarded, dirty, and difficult aspects of reality. And stories that suggest these robes represent a vow to receive and transmit the integrity of our true nature. From this perspective, how peculiar and particularly upsetting that such a non-harmful And benevolent orientation towards life would be persecuted and driven underground. And of course, we also know that in practice these robes, regardless of their symbolism, have been a cause for conflict, creating divisions with a sense of a privileged in-group and an out-group, a vehicle for at least a symbol of institutionalized hierarchy, and an instrument for the projection and misuse of power. And on this, the day after International Holocaust Remembrance Day, it feels relevant to mention that within our own lineage, these robes have been worn by both Bernie Glassman, a pioneer of Zen in the United States, as well as a Jew from Brooklyn, who co-founded the Zen Peacemakers and started an annual multi-faith bearing witness retreat to Auschwitz that began in 1996 and continues to this day, as well as one of his teachers, Yasutani Roshi, who published violently anti-Semitic texts at one point in his life, and actively supported Japanese militarism during World War II. Um, And I wanted to surface this history of the persecution of Zen, not because, as I mentioned, that I feel like American Zen is being driven underground, but because even the priests among us take off these robes and where many other identities out in the world. And for some of us, unfortunately, we are wondering how safe it is to just be right now. I know this because I have felt myself going underground, going into hiding recently. I feel it and I see it in what I am saying and what I am not saying, where and to whom. I know it because friends and colleagues tell me about how they aren't sure that yesterday's friends are today's, and because for many of us it is unclear how to respond to the many atrocities that seem to be unfolding before us. How to not know, bear witness, and act compassionately to a number of profoundly disturbing situations. But today and again, in the echo of International Holocaust Memorial Day, I want to name October 7th and recognize how profoundly it shifted the ground, how it cut the lights off, leaving many of us to feel our way in the dark through layers of disaster. So as I said, I've been in hiding, and even though I am safe, I've still been protecting myself from listening to other people's experiences and from expressing my own, except to uh, a very few, where I know that both I and they can say a wrong or hurtful word and feel confident that that word will be the start of a conversation, the continuation of a relationship, and not the end of either. And I'd like to briefly share um, three personal stories. And when I thought about why I wanted to share these stories, And in this context, it is because in a time like this, when it's really just so easy to hide within, buried under popular narratives, I want to remember these personal experiences and stories of mine publicly. I want to state, that they are true, um, also true. And because I feel I feel safer in the world for these stories and for the people within them. Because I know that there are these little islands of sanity everywhere. Um, because these stories. And a hundred more that I can't share during this talk are part of my patchwork robes. And I wear these teachings and I want to offer them to you. So one, in 2003, during the second intifada, I went to the Gaza Strip as part of an interfaith delegation uh, it was a time of violent unrest, but nothing like what is happening now. And during this tr- trip, a few of us were invited to visit a small farm. We were warned not to film <clears throat> and that the farmer's house was in a particularly dangerous area, but our host felt that it was essential that our delegation meet this farmer. Listen to his story and share it however we could. The farmer had a small orange orchard, and unfortunately, as I would learn sitting by his side drinking sweet mint tea in his living room, his house had the tallest roof in the neighborhood and was also close to an Israeli security tower uh, of some sort. I say, unfortunately, because as the tallest structure in the area and because of its proximity to the Israeli security tower, Hamas had identified this man's house where he lived with his wife and small children as a place of interest. Hamas informed him that they needed to take over the third story of his home, just the third story that he was welcome to stay with his family on the first two floors. He refused as best he could. He even went to the Israeli army personnel in the area, who he said he had a personal relationship with and told them about his situation. He told them that he did not want any trouble, And the IDF soldiers told him that he must not let Hamas take over his house. The farmer said that he didn't know how he could do that. How do you do that? And eventually Hamas occupied the third story of his house and several firefights took place. And during these violent exchanges, Okay. His orchard was destroyed and his four-year-old daughter was killed. And now as we sat there drinking our tea, his walls pockmarked by bullet holes, the Israeli soldiers had taken over the third story. The soldiers knew we were there and at one point came down to check us out. We all exchanged awkward greetings They looked young and tired and perplexed by our presence. And this man who invited us into his home, what he wanted to share more than anything was that he really just wanted to grow oranges. He still just wanted to grow oranges. He was kind and devastated and really just disgusted. He wanted to share his story with us in part to try and prevent others from using his story to fuel or justify more violence. Two, on October 12th, I began getting letters from an Israeli poet and friend of mine. She was translating letters from Hebrew to English, already written, By some of those who had survived the Hamas terrorist attack on October 7th. These letters detail the horrors of what they experienced and witnessed, which I won't share here. Every one of the letters expresses a deep ruin. Some go no further, but quite a few call out with a raw aspiration that their suffering not be used to fuel more. Three. I only went to Germany with my grandmother a few times. The last time, when she must have already been in her 90s, was unique for me because we stayed with a married couple that were childhood friends of hers for a few nights. They were all young people together in Berlin in the 1920s. And the very first thing I noticed was how much they laughed together. And there was this ease in their conversation that I had never heard before from my grandmother. My grandmother spoke perfect English, but the way she spoke with her old friends was qualitatively different. I can only imagine what a relief it would be to speak in your mother tongue and with the people you grew up with after so many years of doing neither. Her friends had a lovely house, and at some point I learned that they had never left Germany, and this was the first real point of curiosity for me. In addition, the husband was missing a leg and I had been told vaguely that he had lost it during the war. Over over, uh, the course of our time together, I slowly learned that just as my grandmother was working to flee the Nazis of Germany, the husband was being conscripted into the German army, and he had lost his like fighting with the Russians. And both he and his wife were eventually placed in a Russian forced labor camp for a time. That was then, and here and now, they all were sitting around a table, childhood friends, a Jew who left Germany narrowly escaping the Holocaust, an ex-Nazi soldier and his wife, who had both suffered under Russian rule, chirping away about who knows what. Was that okay? Was that possible to be friends again? Postscript. This week it was very cold and my third grader is doing a project on different religious traditions. He and his crew are reading and writing, and maybe most importantly, meeting practitioners and visiting places of worship, a synagogue, a church, and a mosque. We were all fighting a bit of cold in the household, sniffles and such in our zendo, and my mom, sent us one of these. Can you see how ridiculous and cozy this is? She wanted us to be warm and cozy and maybe a bit ridiculous as we step off our hundred foot poles and do what we have to do. So I don't know how these robes or these robes, or your robes, or other people's robes, are looking and feeling to you right now. But they are fundamentally empty. Their meaning and our identity and our identities are not fixed. We are not one thing. Robes are time flowing with time and there have been times when wrapping oneself in the rakasu was like standing on the highest peak and other times when it was like being at the bottom of the deepest ocean and in these uncertain times whether you find yourself looking out at a beautiful field alive with dynamic possibility like the Buddha did with Ananda or wrapped in something dreadful that you wish could be removed like a lotus bud wrestling in the mud, I hope you feel fundamentally safe and strong in the refuge of your true liberated and liberating nature.